Bibles, you can open up to Ruth. Ruth 1 is where we're going to start. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you. Uh, and Ruth, I believe, is page 222 in the seat back Bibles. 222 is right around there. And this is a day where you're going to want to have your Bible open because we are going to do some hopping around. Um, so we're doing this series throughout Advent, looking at the women that are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. There's 42 generations from Adam to Jesus. 42 generations, only five women are named. And so we've asked the question over and over again, why? Why these women? What is it about these stories? What is it about their encounters, their relationships, their interactions? What is it that God wants us to know about them and their stories as we study the Bible, as we look at Jesus, as we spend this season expecting and uh, in longing for Christ's return, as we think about the first advent and Christ's original coming into the world, what is it about these stories? And so we've looked at the story of Tamar and of Rahab, and now uh, this morning we're going to be in the book of Ruth. And I think it's fitting that the third week of Advent is the week of joy. It's why the candle is pretty and pink. It's the week of celebration. It's the week of fun and joy as we remember that Christ is come. And I think it's fitting that we end up in the book of Ruth on the joy week because this is, at the end of the day, a story of joy, a story of God stepping in, grace unexpectedly stepping in to move and shape in the lives of not only Ruth, but also if we're going to talk about the book of Ruth, we're going to talk about her story. We also have to talk about Naomi, her mother-in-law. We have to talk about Boaz, who we'll get to in a little bit. Because God shows up in the lives and in the midst of all three of them. And he does so not with any real over-the-top display of himself, right? But rather it's in the details. It's in the decisions. It's in the everyday going on. They don't really, this is not a book of, of fighting battles. This is not a book of, of going to war. This is not a book of God raining down fire. This is a story of people living their lives. And this account reminds us over and over again that God is in control of all things at all times. And so let's pray, and then uh, we're going to jump in and get to work. So uh, please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to gather together, to be, to be with each other, to be with you, to enjoy your presence, to enjoy your grace and your mercy, and to enjoy you. God, we have all had all kinds of different days, weeks, mornings, months, years. Some of us are counting down the time until 2022 is done. Regardless of what, what we have been through, regardless of what we are in, we're here now in this moment to hear from you to experience you, to engage with you, to be with you. And you brought us here. Just as we're going to read in this book, there is no luck, there is no happenstance. You put all things together. You put all things in place. And so we're here this morning studying your word in your word today for a reason. You have something for us. You have work you want to do in our hearts, in our minds, in our very souls. So God, I pray that you would let all of the other distractions, all of the other baggage, all of the other stuff just sit to the side. Just help us to focus and hear from you this morning. 
Help us to listen to the work of the Holy Spirit in us to encourage us and challenge us and rebuke us and guide us this morning as we open your word. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to jump around a bit this morning, but what I want to do to give us some context for this story is I'm going to read chapter one. It's not very long, but I'm going to read chapter one because that kind of sets the table, sets the scene for everything, and then we will jump in from there. So we are in Ruth one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of her two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Melon and Chilion died, so that the women were left without her two sons and her husband. And she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on, their way, they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. There's a lot to unpack in this story. In fact, a couple of years ago, uh, we actually studied this book. We preached through it, and all those sermons are online. So uh, this morning, what I want to do is I, I do want to go, we're going to go through the story of Ruth, but we're going to do some jumping around. And what I want to do to kind of use anchor points, we're going to look at the three main people within this story. 
And so we're going to start with Naomi. It says right at the beginning, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So this story takes place in the days of judges. It's about a 400-year cycle of the Israelites that where they would be in right relationship with God. Everything would be good. They're following him. They're worshiping. He's taking care of them. And then over time, the Israelites would get distracted, would get led astray, would fall into idolatry and sin. Things would get really bad for them. And then they would cry out, God, save us. God, help us. And then God would send a judge. God would send someone a, a word, with a word from him and would deliver them out. And they would repent and they'd turn away from their sins and they'd come back to God and everything would be good until the next time. And then that cycle just repeats itself over and over again for about 400 years. In fact, the book of Judges, the book right before Ruth, ends with this. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the world that this story is taking place in. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Not only was everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, but there was a famine in the land. And so because of this famine, this man, Elimelech, sees, looks around and says, we got to get out of here. We need to go and find food. So he takes his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, and they go looking for food, which makes sense, right? They need to eat, so we need to go to a place that is comfortable, go to a place that is being provided for. Elimelech and his family, though, they lived in Bethlehem. It's in Judah. It's in the promised land. And this is the days before there were kings, which means God was their king. God was in control of the Israelites. He was leading, guiding, protecting all of the things that a king is supposed to do. That's what God was doing for the Israelites. Which means then that if this famine hits the land, hits the promised land, hits God's people, really it comes down to one of two reasons why that would be happening. One would be judgment against their rebellion, right? They're in a time where everyone's doing whatever they want. Or the other would be that God is trying to test their faith, build their faith, strengthen them. Because sometimes hard things come, tough times come to us to help test us and strengthen us and build within us something that we can't learn in the happy times. There are certain lessons that we can only learn by walking through the hardships, right? We're about to hit into winter. It's kind of like driving in Chicago in the winter. You can theorize about it, you can talk about it, but until you start sliding on some black ice through an intersection, you don't really know how to deal with it until you actually go through it. And that's what, that's what part of what this famine was about, I think. Regardless of why it came, the question that Elimelech should have been asking was, do I trust that God is good and will protect and provide for us? Again, we don't know the reason for the famine, but we do know Elimelech should have stayed there. But he leaves, and not only does he leave and take his family, but they go to Moab, a people who were the perpetual enemies of the Jews. Their ancestors begin with an incestuous relationship. They were at times where the Moabites actually overtook the Israelites and dominated and abused them, and wars had been fought in the past between the Israelites and the Moabites, and wars would be fought again in the future between them. And so while the text doesn't specifically say Elimelech died because he ended up in Moab, I think we've got to take it into consideration. But so he dies, and Naomi and her two sons are now in this foreign land. The sons, whose father didn't set a great example for them about being faithful to God, they decide not only are we going to stay in Moab, we're going to take wives that are Moabites. We're going to do what we're told not to do, what we've been taught not to do our entire lives, we're going to do it anyway. Dads, your kids are paying attention. The things that you value, the things that you think are important, they're paying attention to those things. Your decisions matter. So the two men take 
Even though it was prohibited under the law of Moses, they each take a wife, Orpah and Ruth. They stay in Moab ten years, and neither woman has a child. Again, the text doesn't tell us why, but the two sons are now dead. So we have Naomi, who is a widow, and she has now lost both of her sons. She's in a foreign land, and she has two daughters-in-law who are also now widows. This is how this story of redemption and sovereignty, I said this is a story of joy. It starts with death and famine and rebellion. But see, this is just setting the scene. This is the opening credits. Because God is at work. Naomi hears that the famine has lifted in Judah. That God's people have food, have resources, have life again. And so she decides to go back. It would be understandable if Naomi just said, you know what? Moab is my home now. I'm tired. I'm sad. I'm just going to stay here. But instead, she goes back to the land of God's people. She chooses to leave this life that she has established in Moab for all these years and go back. But that decision doesn't come without issue. Because yes, it's the promised land. Yes, it's filled with God's people, but it's filled with people. And Naomi is now a widow, which means she is the bottom of the totem pole of status. She will be the town charity case. There will be shame and assumed judgments and whispers, accusations leveled against her. But she knows that's where she needs to be. It's God's place. It's God's land. It's where she knows God dwells. She can worship again. She's been away from the temple. She's been away from God's people for over 10 years. She can be with his people again. She can worship again. And so she decides to go, and Naomi takes inventory of the situation, and she tells her daughters-in-law, you need to stay here. She says, stay here. There's nothing but hardship waiting for you if you come with me. If you stay in Moab, you're staying home. You have family here. You have lives here. This is home for you. You could potentially remarry and have a whole new life. There's still a future in Moab for you. But in Naomi's mind, if they stay with her, there is no future for them. This isn't a pity party for Naomi. She genuinely cares about these women. She wants what's best for them. In 1.8, she prays that the Lord would deal kindly as they have with her sons and with her. She says, I pray that the Lord would deal kindly with you. We saw this word last week, kindly. It's the word hesed. It's often translated mercy or steadfast love, loving kindness, grace, care. It's a mixed up, complicated kind of word, loyal love. It's more than a feeling. It's more than a thought. It's an action. It's a way of interacting and engaging with someone. It's putting someone else ahead of yourself. It's a word and action that permeates. This idea of hesed, you're going to hear it a bunch this morning. It permeates throughout this story, in particular when it comes to Ruth. Hesed is how God deals with us. It's how we are to interact with one another and the world around us. A loyal, loving kindness. That was the mark of their relationship, of these two daughter-in-law's relationship to Naomi, and she prays that the Lord would be the same to them. Spiritually speaking, Naomi believes that the Lord is against her. She says, his hand is against me. She believes nothing good is happening and that these women will only see more negativity if they stay with her. And practically, she says, look, I can't provide for you another husband. I don't have one myself. I'm alone. I have nothing to offer you. And so she tells the women in verse, in verse 12 of chapter 1, leave. Orpah realizes the situation. She sadly kisses her mother-in-law, and she walks home. Ruth clung to Naomi. 
Two women who are both outsiders brought into this family, both in an identical situation, and their decisions are completely opposite. See, it makes sense for Orpah to go back home. It would have made sense for Ruth to go back home, but she doesn't because something is different about Ruth. And we're going to get to her shortly. I want to talk about her in a minute, but I want to sit with Naomi for just a few minutes. Because, see, Naomi can't do what we can do. We can skip to the end of the book. We can skip to the end of this story and see how it plays out. I mean, the fact that we're here, we're here, why? Because in Matthew, it talks about Ruth. And so Ruth, we know it has a happy ending because at some point, all of this is going to end up getting us to Jesus. Naomi can't skip to chapter 4 and see that at the end, she's going to have a grandson sitting on her lap. She doesn't get to see that moment. In this moment, right here in chapter 1, on this roadside, she knows that God is against her. At least that's what she thinks. She is overwhelmed by the moment, and I think that's a very common place that we find ourselves. Because we too can find ourselves overwhelmed and surrounded by the chaos and ugliness of this world, and we can sometimes just think, all right, well, this is my life now. This is where we're at, and it's just going to be bad, and nothing good is ever going to happen again. We fail to remember God's sovereignty, which means God is in control of all things at all times. We can feel overwhelmed by the darkness we experience. Naomi believes God is against her for some reason. We look around and we think, man, it's dark and messy and broken in this world. We read another report of another pastor who's fallen into temptation, caught in some scandal. Another school shooting happens. Another friend, another family member struggling in their marriage on the brink of divorce. We're struggling with the weather turning cold and gray. Our work is sucking our souls out. Our commute is exhausting. Our faith is barely hanging on. And now i got to put a smile on and buy presents and be cheery all the time because it's Christmas. I feel completely overwhelmed and powerless and defeated. It can happen. It's the consequences of living in a broken, fallen world. In those seasons, we ask and we cry out, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? And we ask him to move and we ask him, remove this pain, make it not so hard, and yet it lingers. And so I ask you, in those seasons, can you, will you still worship him? Just because you are a Christian doesn't mean you get to avoid the hate and pain and suffering and hardship and rage in this life. If anything, we get saved and it gets harder and tougher and messier. There are too many people who preach this idea that God just wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if you're not those things, then clearly you've done something wrong. That's just not true. It just doesn't make sense, right? Jesus comes to this earth, and he is perfect, and he is good, and he is generous, and he is kind, and he heals, and he feeds, and he teaches, and he does everything wonderful. How does that end for him? He's broke and executed. And that's who we want to be. So this idea that everything should be perfect all the time and just smile through it and you should be happy. And if you're not happy and everything's not perfect, God clearly hates you. It just doesn't play when you read the Bible. If you experience pain and suffering or you pray and you ask God, God, help me. And in this moment, he says, no, can you still worship? In the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. It doesn't mean I'm not walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It means I'm not going to fear or worry because I can trust that God is with me and for me. Now look, we don't and we won't do that perfectly. There are weeks where life it just overwhelms me. 
lately people have asked me how I'm doing, and, and I just keep coming back to the image of, like, you know that guy where there's, like, a pole, and he spins a plate on the pole, and he keeps, keeps it spinning, and it's really cool, and then he makes it even more impressive. There's a bunch of poles, and he starts spinning plates, and he's running around trying to spin the plates and keep them from all from falling. That's how I feel these days. And honestly, I feel like I'm doing it, and I'm, I'm a step behind. Every time I get, and, and something's about to crash, something's about to fall, I feel a little bit tired, a little bit beaten up, and a lot overwhelmed. I'm just a half a step behind on everything. And I'll be honest, it's church. I can be honest, my gut instinct in seasons like this is not always, I'm going to go sit and run and sit with God. Instead, it is to sit and have a pity party for myself, or zone out on YouTube clips, or just disconnect from the world around me. When you have those moments, and for some of us, it is more than moments. It's days, it's weeks, it's months, it might be years. It is going to take intentionally choosing God in those times. Intentionally pursuing him, intentionally taking steps. It's not just going to happen. It's deciding to remember who God is, and that he is who he says he is. It's remember that if you are thirsty, if you are hungry, if you are needing something, the only way to truly be quenched and fed is to go for the living water and the bread of life. That's where your source of life, that's where you get most full. Worshiping God in the pain and suffering is to trust that he is who he says he is. It isn't always easy, but when we do it, I promise you, God shows up every time. When I look at Naomi, when I read her story, I can understand why she feels the way she does. She's alone, and she has lost so much. It's understandable that she feels bitter, that she feels like she has come back to Bethlehem empty-handed. If I was her, I'd think the same way. Nothing in this text tells us that she has done anything wrong, and yet calamity after calamity hits her. When she gets back to Bethlehem, and remember, Bethlehem's a small town. It's like 100 people, and it's not like Chicago, where people move in and out all the time. People just stayed put. This is a town of like 100 people. She's been gone, yeah, maybe a little over a decade, but most people are still there. There are going to be people in this town who still remember Naomi. And she shows up and she tells the women in verse 20, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant. She says, don't call me that. My life is anything but pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. She anticipates the questions and the gossip, and she tells the women, yes, it's me. Yes, I did leave here with a husband and two sons, and we said, see you later, enjoy your famine, we're going to go find food, and we were going to go and live it up. And now I come back, and I'm a widow, and I got no sons, and I got this Moabite woman with me, this foreigner, and I went out full, and I have come back empty-handed. But you see, the thing is, is that when she talks to Ruth and Orpah on the roadside, when she talks to the women in this town, Naomi's not angry with God. And she doesn't just abandon the idea of God. It's so easy to say, you know what, so much bad has happened that clearly there isn't a God, or maybe he's just a vindictive jerk. Naomi never curses God. In fact, she's in this situation, she's in this hard place, and she decides she's going to go back to where she knows God is, in God's land, God's people, in the promised land. See, it's okay to be honest about who we really are and how we really are. We walk into church and we get together every Sunday and we say, hey, how are you doing? How's your week? Good, fine, tired, busy. Cool, see you next week. Naomi's honest her here. 
Her theology might be a little off, but she's honest about where she's at. She's tired, she's exhausted, she's sad, and she feels bitter. And she lets people know that, and that's okay. As the saying goes, it's okay to not be okay. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to pretend everything is sunshine and happiness all the time. Because the reality is, is that life is hard and messy and ugly. It's okay to be sad and frustrated and confused about things. Especially when we're gathered together in church. If we can't be open and honest and real with other Christians, who can we be open and honest and real with? Because the thing that unites Christians, the thing that brings us together, is our belief in and desperate need for a Savior. Right? To be a Christian is to acknowledge our sin and realize that on our own we are destined for hell. That we are in need of a Savior. That we need someone to come and redeem and restore us. So the baseline for our relationships is I need help. I need somebody outside of myself to help me because my sin is going to put me in hell. So by being a Christian, you admit your need for help. So then when did we start having to just pretend all the time that we don't need anything or anyone? When we read through this story, and I encourage you to read through Ruth, it's not a long book. You can do it in one sitting. It takes like, if you do the audio book, it's like 25 minutes. It's not very long. When you read through it, though, you see this change in Naomi. She's exhausted and bitter when she shows up in Bethlehem. But as the story progresses, she begins to see the sun break through the clouds. The kindness of Ruth, the arrival of Boaz, the potential of a future, the birth of a grandson, all of this comes because Naomi took the little bit of beat up, tired faith that she had left in the tank and she chose to go toward God instead of away from him. Even a little bit of faith can do above and beyond what we think it can when our faith is placed in the God of all existence. As Jesus himself says in Matthew 17, if, your faith, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible, not because of who you are, or not even because of your faith, but because of who your faith is in. Naomi's faith was in God, and her mustard seed faith grew and flourished. Naomi shares with the women in Bethlehem that she has come back empty. That's how she feels. And again, it's understandable, but I don't think she's right. She's too overwhelmed to see it, but right next to her is God's provision of grace and kindness in the form of Ruth. On that roadside, as Naomi is listing out all the reasons it makes sense for Ruth to turn and go back home, Ruth makes a choice to reject what some would say is the logical thing to do, and instead she chooses to cling to Naomi. I want you to hear those words again. In verse 16, she says, Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This isn't just a change of address for Ruth, and this isn't temporary. She is making a life-altering decision. A decision to forsake and leave behind the false gods of Moab. This is Hesed on display. Loyal, loving kindness. I'm with you to the end no matter what. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. We don't know if it was maybe it was Ruth's husband who first taught her about God or it was just seeing Naomi's desire and willingness to go back to Judah. We don't know exactly where we where she gets it from, but here we see Ruth declaring that she was done with the false gods of Moab and instead followed and trusted in the one true God of Israel. There is a faith and a hope expressed here. Why else would Ruth decide to go 
follow God if all she has seen is sadness. All she has seen from her family, these Israelite people, is sadness and death and rebellion. But she sees Naomi and her desire to go back to God's people, and she believes, Ruth believes, this is not the end of the story. Ruth must believe something better is coming, and so she clings to Naomi. And every decision moving forward for Ruth has in mind the desire to see not only her mother-in-law exist, not only to see her mother-in-law thriving, but to see her mother-in-law thriving and to be honoring the family that she was brought into. And so these two widows show up in Bethlehem around the time of the barley harvest. That's how it ends in chapter 1. It's a season of celebration. People are a bit cheerier. People are a bit more generous as they are taking in the provisions of the harvest. These two have nothing. They're widows. Ruth is a foreigner widow, a Moabite widow. She is the bottom of the bottom of social pecking order. And we see Ruth's character put in action because it's one thing to say, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you to the end. But there's another thing to say, I'm with you and I'm going to take care of you. Naomi is an elderly woman at this point. Ruth is younger, and so she decides, I'm going to go into the fields to glean, to collect food after the reapers. I'm going to go and get us some food. I'm going to go and find a way to provide for us. And not only does she go to work in the field, but we see in chapter 2, verse 7, she works hard. She spends her day early, since early in the morning, working, collecting grain, collecting barley. Her work is noticed by the reapers, and they share this information with Boaz. He's the third person in this story. We'll get to him in a minute. For right now, all we need to know is that Ruth is gleaning in Boaz's field. In the law, God put things into place to take care of the poor and the foreigner, of which Ruth is both. In Leviticus 19, verse 9, it says, When you reap your harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God puts this in place for two reasons. One, he's God. This is his creation. It's his land. It's his crops. He can do what he wants with it. He's in control. And two, he cares. Our God is love. Our God is just. Our God is right. Our God is good. There are people in this world who get taken advantage of, people who get mistreated, people who society says, we no longer want to deal with you, and they try and get rid of them and push them to the side. God says, that's not going to happen with my people. I'm going to set it up so that doesn't happen. You will take care of the outsider. You will take care of the foreigner. You will take care of those who need to be protected and provided for. Ruth wants to go and gather grain and go and gather up food. And so she goes to those parts of the field that are not supposed to be harvested, harvested, as well as the gleanings. The gleanings are the, the stuff you drop along the way. She says she's going to do this at a field belonging to him in whose sight I find favor, in whose sight I find grace. She realizes she is dependent on someone else showing her grace. And in chapter 2, verse 7, she even asks if she can reap there, if she can go into this field. She is humble in her position. Just because the law of Israel says that she's allowed to do it, doesn't see, she doesn't see herself as entitled. She doesn't expect anything. She is relying on grace. Ruth is dependent on the goodwill of someone else, and that someone else ends up being Boaz, who is a relative of Naomi through her deceased husband. Because Ruth was driven by her own character and desire to care for Naomi, she meets Boaz. He treats her kindly. He protects her, and he gives her much more than what the law would require him to give. He even lets her take from his personal stock. He takes a financial loss to help, to help Ruth and Naomi. He treats her with the same kind of love, grace, mercy, hesed 
that she herself was known for. He takes note of the way that she left her home and her people and how she has given up everything she did have so that she could honor and care for Naomi. Boaz sees the humility, the genuineness, and hesed that flows out of Ruth and in turn wants to help. He wants to be a blessing to her. In chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz prays, basically prays over Ruth. He says, The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, because you have sought out Yahweh, the great refuge and protector, I pray that he does what he does, that he does and steps into those roles that who he is, that he would protect and provide for you. Ruth has put her hope and trust and faith in God. Boaz sees that, and because of his own devotion and faith and character, he himself is challenged and encouraged to be a blessing to Ruth. In this woman, Ruth, we see a person who is acting out what it means to show the loving kindness of God to another person with humility. That way of living challenges Boaz to do the same. We as Christians, as people who have received grace, mercy, love, and justice from God, are to be people who show grace, mercy, justice, and love to the world around us. But we don't do it to get something from God. He is not a slot machine where if I do good things, God's going to give me good things back. He owes me. No, it's rather because we have already received from God in Christ. We live in response to the reality that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that when we are saved, we are saved from the wrath of God to our sins to be a blessing toward others. It is with a purpose and plan that God called you and saved you and adopted you and invited you to be part of what he is doing in this world. We do this by actively seeking out ways and opportunities to exhibit the same tangible, selfless, loving-kindness, hesed, that God has shown us. And as we do it, it has the power to spur on one another toward good works, as it says in Hebrews 10. That we can encourage one another as what we see, how Ruth loved and cared for Naomi, it challenged Boaz to do the same. And it can also call others outside of our faith, outside of Christianity, that they might see the light of Christ shining in the darkness as we try to live out our faith, and they would glorify God because of it, as it says in Matthew 5. Hesed goes beyond a feeling or an idea. It is an action. As they say, love is a verb. Hesed produces more hesed because it is good and pure and beautiful. We experience it, and in turn, we want to then show it to others so that they might experience it. This selfless loving kindness, it should be a mark of us as a people. Because we have experienced the loving kindness of God. It should be what we are known for and by. It takes intentional, active interactions with the world, though. Not just with church, not just with other Christians, but everyone that we interact with. It's about considering others ahead of yourself. So how do you consider others in regards to your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your fellow students, your barista, your Uber driver, random Facebook comments, Strangers, enemies, what is the mark of those relationships? In Naomi, we are reminded that even small faith is seen and received by God. And in Ruth, we are encouraged to be a people who show hesed to the world around us. And finally, there's Boaz. He shows up in chapter 2 and he is described as a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech and so a relative of Naomi. 
By all accounts, everything we see, he is a man of faith who cares for those around him. He meets Ruth, he hears her story, and he wants to help. He's got no ulterior motives here other than he's a good guy looking to do good for these two widowed women. He provides them food to feed and sustain them for weeks, even months. And while that's generous, there is still the reality that these women are widows and they need sustained help, sustained care, sustained protection and provision. When we studied the book of Ter- the story of Tamar in Genesis 38, we learned about this law, this idea that if a married man dies, his siblings would step in to marry the widow to provide for her and continue the family line and legacy. In chapter 1, Naomi actually references this same law, but Naomi had no other sons that she could have step in to help out her two widowed daughter-in-laws. Boaz is not held to this law. He's a family member, so the law doesn't specifically apply to him. He has the right to redeem the land and the name and everything that was Elimelech's. He could step in and help if he so choose to. He has the ability to take Naomi and Ruth out of their situation as poor widows who are just dependent on anybody to throw them any kind of help and to actually give them security. And that's what he ends up doing. In chapter 3, Ruth, in an act of humility, goes, to, goes in the night to where Boaz is sleeping, and he asks her, or she asks him in verse 9, she says, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your cloak, it might say in your translation. Spread your covering. Spread your wings. It's an idiom for marriage. But also remember what Boaz prayed in chapter 2, for Ruth, that the Lord would reward her for seeking refuge under, her, under his wings. Ruth is being very direct with her, with her word choice. She says, look, I sought the refuge of God under his wings, and now I'm seeking the refuge under yours. Even in the way she replies to him is with humility in it. She doesn't actually ask Boaz to marry her. She just asks Boaz, will you please take action? You know you can redeem what has been lost to the death of Elimelech and my husband. You are a redeemer. You have this right if you so choose. And Boaz does take action. He pursues the proper channels, includes, including revealing that he's already been investigating how he might step in to help these women. And he knows there's another relative, another man who could step in, who's technically got dibs, if you will, to step in and help these two women. And he already knows that. We don't know this guy's name. He doesn't want the gig, so we're not going to talk about him. Boaz steps in. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. And both and Ru- Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a son named Obed, and he would be for Naomi, much like for Ruth and Boaz, a tangible reminder of God's goodness in their life. That when things get rough again in the future, they could look at Obed and they could remember how God provided. He is this living, tangible reminder for them. I'm fascinated with the idea of altars in the Old Testament. You can read these, you read the Old Testament long enough, somebody's walking along and something happens. God makes, God does something, and it says they build an altar. Now, usually when you see an altar get built in the Old Testament, especially in the wilderness, it's just a bunch of rocks they kind of stack on top of each other and maybe stick some sticks in. Maybe there's a, a crude inscription, but there's not a whole lot of detail. But what I love about this idea is that people in the future would be walking along And they would see this collection of rocks. And they might not know the story. They might not know what God did there. But they could see it and say, God did something here. This place is important. This place has value. This place is important for somebody because God moved here. That's why this altar is here. Do you have those things? Do you have those tangible reminders to be able to help you remember what God did? 
whether it's an actual thing or if I would encourage you to start journaling. Write out your prayers. Write out when God answers those prayers. Write out those times and moments where God, you see God clearly move so that you have something where you can look back on, on the dark, hard, messy days. You can look back and say, God moves. God's alive. God does stuff. I remember. I saw this happen. Because of Ruth and to a degree because of Boaz, Naomi, who lost so much, at the end of the story in chapter 4, verse 16, she is sitting with her grandson on her lap and she gets to help raise him. She gets to be a mother of sorts again. She gets to help raise and guide this boy, but she's also a grandma, so you know she spoiled that kid rotten. In verse 17, the women in the neighborhood declare a son has been born to Naomi. She lost all the men in her life, and here God restores what was lost due to the rebellion and sin of her husband and sons by giving her a grandson. Now with all of this going on, and all of it being the byproduct of Boaz's generosity and kindness and grace to Ruth, some might want to make Boaz the hero of the story. And while Boaz is the one who shows grace to Ruth, he is not the hero. This is not a story about how this man Boaz rescues this poor woman Ruth, and, makes, and he is the Prince Charming riding in on the white horse. Boaz is a humble man that God uses. But it is God who is the hero of this story. Boaz is a faint, flawed shadow of a greater, perfect rescuer and redeemer in Jesus Christ. He is but a pointer to the one who shows grace to the humble, to the one who gives excessive, abundant, overflowing grace and blessings. The one who puts on display what is compassion and grace and the merciful, loyal, loving kindness of Hesed. God showed us what that looks like by dying on the cross in our place for our sin so that we might experience forgiveness and freedom and hope and new life if you would put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you will confess your need for him and seek refuge under his wings, there is amazing, awe-inspiring grace to be had. We've been asking the question every week, why this story? Why these women? Why Ruth? The story of Ruth shows us God is in control of all things at all times. He is always at work, even and especially when it seems like all hope is lost. When things are dark and the world is a mess, God is in control. He never stops being in control. He will never stop being in control. He is not surprised or shocked by the decisions we make. He doesn't have to try and adjust and recalculate his plans to fit our decisions. So whether it is your personal life that seems to be in upheaval, or you look at the city, the country, the world that we live in, and it just makes you sad and angry, it's okay to be those things. But do not lose sight of the fact that God is in control for his people's good and his glory. And most of the time, it's without any big miracles. Throughout this book, God is mentioned and talked about, but he doesn't show up like typical Old Testament events. It's a normal story of normal people dealing with hardships and relationships, making day-to-day decisions to just try to get to tomorrow. In chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Ruth, Ruth was deciding to go gleaning, to go and collect food. And it says, she, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened to come to that part of the field. She wasn't planning on it. How could she? She didn't even know who Boaz was. There's a line in a, in a song. Um, it's by the rapper Lecrae. And the line is, is very short. It just says, I don't believe in luck. I believe in grace. 
It's not a coincidence. It's not happenstance. It's not just dumb luck. This is the grace of God. This is the divine, sovereign providence and intervention of God. This is him at work to redeem and restore Naomi and Ruth through simple decisions. And this is how God works. Yes, sometimes he shows up in the big, obvious, oh man, that was God who moved kind of way. But so often he moves and works in the small decisions of our lives. See, God doesn't waste time, his or ours. He is always at work, even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when you think the situation, your decision is too small, too insignificant to matter. It matters to God because you matter to God. Ruth's decision to go and glean, to end up in this field at this time, on this day, led to a relationship with Boaz. God orchestrated this to happen through simple decisions, through simple choices. God shows up over and over again. The book of Ruth ends with a short genealogy, a reminder and testament to the work that God has done to not only graft in this woman, Ruth, this foreigner, this Moabite enemy of God into the family of God, but she becomes the great-grandmother of David, the greatest king ever, Israel ever knew, the poet warrior, the giant killer, the uniter of peoples. And we know that many generations later, a baby will be born to a couple of nobodies in that nowhere, middle of nowhere town of Bethlehem, and that baby will change all of existence. God takes our decisions. He takes the things we deem as small and inconsequential. He takes what we think is too dark, too overwhelming, too broken. He takes what we think is too chaotic and ugly, and from it, he makes that which is beautiful and good. You got a little bit of faith? Is that faith tired and strained and a little bit hard to see at times? It's okay, it's enough. From the darkness of a famine and the deaths of Naomi's husband and sons, this leads us to be reminded of what we saw with Tamar and what we saw with Rahab and what we see again with Ruth, that the grace and mercy of God reaches further than we could possibly dream. What you are living through right now matters to God. It is part of what he is doing to call this broken world back to himself. You might not get to see that right now. You might have no idea about how the things that you are enduring right now play into the bigger picture. And you might not ever get to see those answers on this side of eternity. But I promise you, your time is not wasted. The things you are going through has purpose. Ruth couldn't have possibly imagined that her decision to stay by her mother-in-law's side would graft her into the bloodline of the savior of the world. Her decision to pick barley in a certain field, that she went left instead of right, that she went forward instead of going back, that she stopped in this particular place on this particular day, and Boaz happened to be there and happened to hear about her, that all of that would lead to a certain decision that would lead to generation upon generation that would eventually get us to the manger and to the cross and to the empty tomb and to right here, right now. A little bit of faith when placed in God can do mighty works. Loyal love produces more loyal love, and God is in control of all things at all times, which means there is no one beyond the saving and redeeming love of God. Outsiders, insiders, friends, enemies, regular people, God uses and calls and welcomes all who would put their trust and faith in the gospel, in the good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto us on that day was born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for 
for the days and times and moments where you are show up and show off and are big and it's obvious that you move and it's obvious that you're in control and it's obvious that you're doing miracles. God, we thank you for those days that we can wrap our arms around those, those moments and remember them. But God, we also know that you show up in every detail, in every decision. And we might not always think about it. We might not always realize it. We might not always dwell on it. But God, we, we know you do. It's who you are. You're the God who moves and cares about our decisions, cares about where we live and where we work and who we hang out with and how we spend our time and what we're doing today and what we're doing tomorrow. These things matter to you. God, we thank you for being so intimately involved in our lives in this world. We thank you that you care about us so much that you would care about our decisions. You are interested and involved and using these things, using these as opportunities to be the light of the world, using these as opportunities for you to show yourself to this broken and dark world, to remind them that you are light. God, the fact that you would call us to be part of that, that you would use our brokenness, you would use our rebellion, you would use the pain of this world to bring joy and goodness into this world is too much for us to comprehend at times. God, as we leave here and we go to lunch and we go be with family and friends and we go to work and school tomorrow and, and we just go back to doing stuff and we get ready for parties and celebrations and, and we just get through the day and we stand in line for buying presents or we interact with Amazon delivery people. God, you're involved in every one of those situations, every one of those interactions. Help us to remember that. Help us to not let our brains go to sleep, but to actively find ways and opportunities for us to be the lights of the world you have made us to be, to show Hesed, to be the hands and feet of the church, to, to be and show this loyal, loving kindness to this world. God, we thank you that your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness goes further and farther than we could ever possibly dream. That it extends even to the enemies, even to the outsiders. And God, every one of us was an enemy. Every one of us was an outsider at one point before you welcomed us in to be the children of God. And Lord, if anyone hears this and doesn't know you, hasn't put their faith and trust in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God, I pray that right now in this moment, whatever it is that's holding them back, whatever walls they have built up, that you would knock them over and show them and remind them of how good you are and show them that you are for them and not against them and you are welcoming in them into your family. God, every decision we make matters. Help us to remember that so that we can be these lights of the world you have made us to be. We thank you and praise you. Amen.